Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. Good morning and welcome to Talking Therapy with myself, Marvin Goldfried, and my esteemed colleague. Good morning, Marvin. Alan Francis. Well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> supposed to give you a name. Thank you. So, so listen, Alan, today we're going to talk about a topic that's near and dear to your heart, narcissism. Uh, and that maybe that didn't sound right. Maybe but, near and dear to my personality. Is no, that... no, maybe I, I, I shouldn't have said it quite well. Well, no, well no. you, you, you have been at the forefront of diagnoses and the, and of all the controversies of diagnoses and the whole issue of narcissism. And so today, let's let's talk about narcissism. Is it innate, or is, how much of it is innate? How much of it is learned? Can it be changed? And who are the narcissists that we know and not, necessar not necessarily love dearly? You know, I, I told you the story before, but how I wrote the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder in 1978. My wife said how broad-minded it was of the American Psychiatric Association to let one of the people who has the disorder write the criteria. <laughs> so, uh, so your first question is how much is innate and how much is, is learned? I think, I think one thing to be aware of with all personality disorders is that they're exaggerations of useful behaviors, that we don't have these behaviors for no reason at all, and that... Um, narcissistic traits can be very adaptive for the individual and very adaptive for the group in which the narcissist lives in. So many people with narcissistic personality disorder would rise to leadership positions in the group in a way that could be very useful. And sometimes it's in the case of the US, England, and the Soviet Union, not so useful to have narcissistic leaders. And uh, from the point of view of the individual, having that kind of self-confidence and grandiosity may be a survival factor both for them and also they may have more offspring. So we shouldn't see narcissism as just a pathological thing. It's on a dimension with normality and, and the right amounts may be very useful. I, I remember um, uh, Jeff Young when he did a spinoff of cognitive therapy and developed schema therapy would come in to, to the group that he had a workshop, he had a regular workshop, and he would come in each time and talk about uh, different types of schemas. And when he spoke about narcissism, he spoke about the good narcissism, namely <laughs> the ability to come in every week and, <laughs> and, and talk about stuff and be self-assured and, and so on. 
so, so so the adaptive thing is that that they become leaders yep and i don't think we should see it as good and bad no more a dimension and that that's very important because people who have mild narcissistic personality disorder are treatable in a certain way but not treatable in others and people who have severe narcissistic personality disorder really i think only lend themselves to supportive therapy not to therapy toward change so knowing the severity is as important as, as diagnosing the trait why do you think that the more severe narcissists are resistant to treatment or is it the same as you know severe anything else well, I think that severe narcissists are, are, are more resistant to treatment than severe anything else, because by the very nature of being a severe narcissist, they don't see themselves either as needing help, and they don't think that anyone else is great enough to provide help. And so you can't picture Donald Trump or, or, or Vladimir Putin or Boris Johnson suddenly saying, aha, I see the error of my ways. I'm from now on going to try to be more empathic, less ruthless, less grandiose. The people who have the condition in a severe form are the least likely to have insight about it or motivation to change. Mm -hmm. So were they born that way, you think? Well, or did they? And how much of it was how much of the severity? And this is a hard question. I don't expect you to have the answer, but I'm curious about your view. You know, how much of the variance of severe narcissism comes from something that is dispositional and how much of it is that it's learned over the, the course of a person's life? Well, I, I think like most things in, in our field, it, it's useful to take a broad biopsychosocial approach and not assume that any one answer is ever going to work for everyone or ever explain everything in anyone. So the studies of personality um, often done with with identical twins show that for this and for many other traits about half of the variance comes from genes and half comes from other stuff mm -hmm. and I, I think that that's probably a fair a fair bet for uh, people with narcissistic personality disorder that at least a substantial part of their um, later personality um, development and and behavior it may be predetermined beforehand based on the genetics and having parents who are very strongly narcissistic themselves, but only half. Uh -huh, I, think uh -huh. the, I think the rest is a combination of psychological factors, and we'll get to them in a minute, but also social factors. So there's been always a long debate about how much of what seems to be personality functioning is inherent in the individual, how much is based on the social situation they're placed in. And there's a whole literature showing that individuals don't usually have a very fixed personality, that th their behaviors will be changeable depending on their social uh, context. Yeah. That's less true for people with narcissistic personality disorder, especially the severe form. So they tend to bring the narcissism into every situation. It's not just they become narcissistic in some situations, not in others. However, I have known people who were fairly humble early in life who became obnoxiously narcissistic as they got older with success. So the idea that success can turn someone's head, yeah, being in a position of power will bring out narcissistic behaviors that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I've seen this happen with a number of people, many of them in our field. 
I was going to I was going to get to that, and, and certainly let's not name names. Um, but I've seen the same thing. That's kind of interesting, and I haven't spoken to anybody about this before. This is this is the first time, so this is good for me. Um, where I've I've known people professionally, and they were just nice people, really nice people, uh, and they had good ideas, and they knew how to present the material professionally. And they got accolades and applause and money and everything else. And over a period of time, they were not as nice. They just seemed to be smitten by the applause. Do you have other thoughts about that? Well, it's it's like um, it's like actors, performers, who say they need that applause, that it keeps them going. Uh, like Judy, well, we can mention names like Judy Garland. No, I'm not saying that she's necessarily a narcissist. She could have been lots of, lots of person, you know, lots of fit into lots of categories. But it's, um, it's, it's addictive when somebody says, uh, Alan, you know, I really think that what you've done is fantastic. You're such a great guy and i'm really lucky no one told me that i know but but it might have gone to my head but i never got that <laughs> ah gone to your head so so that's the that's the lay conception of learned narcissism yeah it's it's gone gone to your head and that can be a late development so that there there can be your question is its causes we discussed the earliest development genetic the latest would be the situation in which someone who wasn't necessarily at least overtly that narcissistic becomes narcissistic gradually into life because of life experiences and then there's the most typical of, of uh, nurture issues and that is what what in child rearing would bring out narcissistic traits yeah you know as you're saying this i'm, I'm thinking of the research that i do know of uh people who are born behaviorally inhibited introverted shy uh anxious and and they can be identified fairly early in life and the research that's been done by kagan and other people uh, have shown that this tendency correlates with later anxiety disorders right. is, is there anything about identifying early narcissists that's a really good uh good question i don't know of any and i think jerry had a special model where it was e it's easier to look at possible anxiety symptoms in a fetus because you can just measure heartbeat. Yeah. Those fetuses that have more responsivity in their heartbeat later go on to be more anxious as little kids and then more anxious as adults. It's harder to have a telltale kind of behavioral marker for narcissism that you could be ju begin judging in a fetus in an early childhood. Mm -hmm. Getting back to the nurture thing, I don't think that there's much systematic literature on this, but I think there is a lot of common wisdom. One of the psychoanalytic theories about what what nurtures, what, what defects in nurturing lead to narcissistic personality disorder emphasize the lack of empathy in parents, especially the mother. Mm -hmm. and the lack of empathy from outside drives the person inside for narcissistic sustenance. It's hard to know how much of this would be actually behaviorally transmitted, how much genetically, because that unempathic mother 
or and or father might themselves be narcissistic and might have contributed a genetic load, not just yeah. a child rearing load. But one factor that's often described is a lack of empathy in the parents leads to a lack of empathy in the child. Yeah, but you know that could that could be pulled, so to speak, from the child. Um, it's hard to empathize with this this kid because of their behaviors. That too. It's a third variable that in, interacts and makes it confusing. That's an excellent point that hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, because you know, this, is, this whole notion of um, family over-involvement and criticism as, as uh, a variable that, that uh, interferes with getting the identified patient in a family to change. And they say, you know, you, to, to really get the parents to become less over-involved and critical, uh, it may be to, for them to recognize that their attempt to change their kid because of some genetic load uh, is not working and can't work. So the over-involved patient may be, oh, uh, over-involved parent may be pulled by a kid that needs involvement. And it just seems to make sense, and it would be counterintuitive, and, and some people have argued it's counterintuitive to protect the fearful child. They need protection from the point of view of a parent, but it may be what they really need, and I think there are some studies that show this, is um, they need to learn to push the envelope themselves. They need to learn a greater sense of independence and efficacy. I think that th this goes to two aspects of modern child rearing that some people think have led to a narcissistic generation. One is the uh, good job phenomenon that it, partly since Dr. Spock, everything that a kid did. No, you're not pronouncing it right. Good job. <laughs> good job. That's that's your Long Island pronunciation. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you know that. <laughs> yeah. So if you go to a little league baseball game, uh -huh. parents are cheering everything like crazy as if amazing things are happening every moment. Everything the kid does is a good job. The expectation and entitlement that comes from that kind of upbringing. And then it's often coupled with tremendous parental pressure to always be the best, to always be competing. It's getting really crazy now with uh, helicopter parents uh -huh. starting in um, – the kids are in third, I mean, the three or four worried about whether they're getting into Harvard. The uh, pressure on kids to be better than everyone else, to be world changing, to grow up to be Bill Gates. And at the same time, most kids are not going to be able to live up to that and yet may carry the expectation of themselves that they should be that world beating person, should get that kind of grandiose admiration from yeah people around them. So I don't know precisely whether, and I'm sure it's very complicated with different combinations of par parental push, uh, excessive admiration, childhood inborn narcissism that may make it harder to be empathic. But it, 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 it certainly seems like the result of that is a culture that selects for uh, excessively narcissistic individuals. You think Twitter is making some people narcissistic? Well, worse than Twitter or Instagram and uh, anything that has a kid taking pictures of himself wherever he is, um, showing off how great they are, how great their lives are, 
creating envy in others who can't have, I think social networking was, yeah. was, is wonderful in so many ways. And I, I couldn't be more grateful for Wikipedia and Google. On the other hand, it, it does create tremendous pressures on kids and drives many of them in the narcissistic direction. Yeah. You have to get enough likes on yeah. something you what, post. What could be a better way of expressing it than a world that measures uh, success or failure in likes? Yeah. Well, we I've certainly experienced that um, uh, in academics where somebody does something and wins an award or gets a book published and then everybody then has to give a has to give everybody gives a congratulation and if you don't give a congratulation you know uh, then you're concerned that uh, the other person will be offended so there is that pressure that it, so there's it, a system that's that's in place so you think the world will have more and more narcissists as a result of social media well, it's hard to know whether, you know, we're just making up this narrative or whether it really exists. It's not yeah. something we have objective evidence about. Um, it, it's not a scientific observation. But anecdotally, it is remarkable how many countries are uh, led by narcissistic schmucks. Yeah. And interestingly, it's much more a problem with males in general and much more a problem with male leaders. Yeah. That, Male leaders tend to this, whether they're born to narcissism or achieve it through the uh, going to the head phenomenon. But yeah. we have in the world a number of male leaders who are doing disastrous things for the world based on their own needs, not the needs of their countries or of yeah. humanity as a whole. I don't know if I ever told you my diagnostic criteria for uh, narcissists when they're now profession. It's somebody who is watching a parade and then runs to the front to lead it. <laughs> and actually, it's a, an interesting, there was an interesting dialogue about Trump that was a part of whether he was um, had a narcissistic personality disorder, and if he did, whether that was grounds for disqualifying him as president based on the 25th Amendment. I, I took the position that one, he didn't qualify because in order to get the diagnosis, DSM rules required not only that you meet all the criteria, which he met at a world-class level. Uh -huh. Trump may be one of the, uh, you know, if you look at the history of humanity, Trump would be up there amongst the most narcissistic people who ever lived, and especially if you compare his uh, real abilities with his own self-conception of his abilities. But that in itself did not mean, mean that he had the personality disorder, that meeting every criteria to the hilt doesn't count for account for two other factors that go into the diagnosis. And one is that it requires, it caused considerably, considerable distress or considerable impairment. And with Trump, there was no distress. Trump loves being tr Trump, yeah. however idiotic and horrible that is. It doesn't impact him in a, in a distressful way. And also he doesn't, cause impairment so far being a narcissistic asshole has not caused impairment to trump it's been his sort of trump card to have pardon the pun throughout his life it, it causes distress and impairment to every single person around him it's destructive to the united states it's destructive to the world climate that he is the most destructive person one of the most destructive people in our history but that doesn't mean that it's caused impairment to his functioning. 
that he's done just great being the narcissistic asshole he is. It's been rewarded every step of the way. So I would say one, that he doesn't meet the criteria for the diagnosis. And two, you couldn't disqualify American presidents based on being severe narcissists because a lot of them happen. It's almost been a requirement for the job. Well, can't you be a narcissist and have very good lawyers? (laughs) It helps. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Freud was a narcissist? You know, I hate to diagnose historically. Um, and it, 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 I never thought about this before. It's an interesting question because part of the problem is what we brought up before. He was this obscure Viennese doctor who couldn't afford to get married and was kicked out of the lab because some, two other people had the jobs that he, he wanted. And he goes into private practice. And he then, with Breuer's uh, mentorship, discovers psychoanalysis and becomes world famous. So if it would go to the head of anyone, it would go to his head. But he also always described himself as being the prize son, mother who adored him. He, when he left uh, Vienna to go to London, he left his sisters behind and they wound up in the uh, concentration camps and were killed. So certainly, if you want to be a strong critic of Freud, you can find a lot of narcissistic elements in his grandiose presentation of psychoanalysis, in his lack of empathy for people who disagreed with him on intellectual fine points, and he made that into a family struggle. But there were also many elements of him that were just the opposite. And I guess that reflects one of the things about personality, that even though it's a a fixed, pervasive, enduring pattern of behavior, that doesn't mean the person is always that way in every situation. Yeah. And that, okay. I was going to get to that point. I'm glad, I'm glad that you did. Go ahead. And, and that, you know, there are a couple of things that, that, um, that bother me. Um, one is the categorical nature of diagnosis. You either are or are not, uh, as opposed to uh, you are a certain way in certain situations, but not that way in other situations. And I think that's, you know, that's more of a behavioral, cognitive behavioral than psychodynamic point of view. It's, uh, we've had this discussion, I don't know if you remember this, years and years ago over wine and cheese after uh, an NIMH uh, meeting that we attended and talking about um, personality disorders as categories versus variables. I remember vividly, I remember you were much younger then and, and so was I <laughs> about 40 years ago. But I remember standing, we were with our wine and cheese, and it was in, in Emily Odie's room or suite. Uh, she was the, for those people listening, she, she was the executive uh, staff member that uh, put this, uh, that, that was in charge of our meeting. Uh, and we were talking about that, about cate- variables versus category. So that's one thing, but it's also, People are different in different situations. Yeah, I, I wrote a paper just at that time. It may have been why I was bubbling over with the topic on personality diagnosis in DSM-3 and whether it should be categorical or dimensional. And in 1994, we did a paper on dimensions of personality, not when, not whether, but when. Eventually, we'd have to get to a, a dimensional rating system, not a categorical one, because it's very clumsy to be dividing people yay or nay on personality disorders when it's clearly 
they lap into normality, lap into each other, lap into situational um, you know, behaviors that have nothing yeah. to do with long-term personality. But in any case, I think that you're absolutely right that the category of personality disorders distorts and loses information. The trouble is that we've never been able to figure out a dimensional system to replace it. Yeah. There have been many de dimensional systems. Yeah. None of them have been widely accepted. No, I remember looking at one that was proposed and it was it was horrific. It's like it's impossible to be able to do the ratings uh, on, on some of some of the characteristics. You just don't have the observational information. Uh, and there was just too much of it. You know, people say, well, you know, when DSM went through successive revisions, they got rid of the psycho uh, psychodynamic stuff or psychoanalytic stuff. But that's not true because personality disorders is directly derived from psychoanalytic theory. Uh, no, it's not true. Well, look, look you know, we're talk, we, you know, we're talking about obsessive compulsive, narcissistic, uh -huh. talking about fixations and things like that. A lot of this stuff goes back to Aristotle. Uh, yeah, it may go back to Aristotle, but but um, was it? I don't think you. I don't. I think you can deal with personality disorders descriptively without having the psychodynamic assumptions about their causation. Well, if you call it once you call it disorders, then this is a problem I've had ever since I was an undergraduate. Uh, I remember the professor lecturing on fixations. And if if you have a fixation on the oral stage, you are dependent. If you have a fixation on the phallic stage, you're narcissistic, blah, blah, blah. blah. And you, these are the different personality characteristics or dis and, and, and disorders uh, that depend on fixation. And I remember asking the teacher, I said, what if you don't have the fixations? What does that personality then look like? If, if the personality is a function of fixations and there are no fixations, hypothetically, then the, does the person have no personality? Yeah. Well, well, Freud developed this theory of oral, anal, genital yeah. um, regressions and fixations in, in the early 1900s as a model to try to explain different personalities and different symptoms. And it was, a, at the time, a plausible and very interesting model. It took a certain amount of genius to create the model. However, it was completely wrong. The, the, the theory he had about causation mm -hmm. not to have any value at all at this point, very little value at this point. Yeah. So I, I think you can drop that altogether without changing very much the fact yeah. that in real life, people present with these characteristics. We may not understand very clearly only in the broadest way, why they develop these characteristics, but they do have them. And uh, I like an evolutionary standpoint that says that they're all useful, that they've gotten out of whack, that they've gotten out of whack because of genetic, psychological, and social factors, and that then we have to figure out how best to treat the individuals without assuming that we understand exactly why they got the problem in the first place. Well, we're getting close to the end of our chat. Which is always. You want to do treatment another time? Uh, yeah, we can do treatment another time, and maybe, maybe, maybe what we need is another Marshall Linehan in the field. And what I mean by that is maybe we need a recovered narcissist <laughs> who, 
who has insights into narcissism from not only a professional but a personal point of view. And um, I don't know if we know of any who would be willing to come on our podcast. Uh, there are a bunch of them. A lot of them. I'm not sure they would recognize themselves as narcissists. Yes. And but I, I, I think I may be enough of one to be able to summarize the issue. <laughs> uh, the, only, I, the only thing that stops me from being a, a really pathological narcissist yeah, what? is a sense of humor. When, when, once you can make fun of yourself, it's uh, really right. hard. And you know what else? In order to make fun of yourself, you have to have a metacognitive awareness the and I jerk. think, and I think that narcissists do not get it. They do you have not to have, have a cognitive awareness that you're really just a, a small worm and kind of a jerk. Winston Churchill said, "I may be a worm, but methinks I'm a glowworm." <laughs> On that note, um, <laughs> we'll talk again next week. Stay safe. See you more. Take Bye -bye. care. Bye bye. Pleasure.